So, you want to save the planet. More than 100 world leaders will gather in Glasgow, Scotland for COP26. There, they will make some of the biggest decisions yet on how to tackle climate change and set out plans that will change the way we all live our lives forever. But that's the big picture. What can we do to help now? I'm Lewis Mickey. And I'm Natalie Crawford Goodwin. And this is So You Want to Save the Planet. So, Lewis, COP26, we're at the end of it. What has your experience been of that? It's been a whirlwind. It just, it doesn't even feel like that was two weeks ago. It it simultaneously feels as though that was longer than two weeks ago that it started and less time than two weeks ago that it started. It's that kind of experience, I think. It's just, it's been a lot. It has been a lot. And I don't want to stand on anybody's toes or anything when I say this, but it's not been quite as dramatic, I think, as we were anticipating. I would agree, yeah. It's been one of those where there's been a lot happening and there's been a lot to do, but it hasn't necessarily been that chaos that I think we were maybe fearing mm-hmm. more than yep. there was anticipation and there was fear. And that comes in both, I suppose, the protests because they haven't, you know, fingers crossed, because as we record, there's probably still a couple of days that this could happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but there hasn't been, you know, people walking up the middle of the, the motorway or anything like that, which we, of course, saw a lot in England yep. in the lead up. But then even when you look inside the venue, there's been a lot of negotiations, but that doesn't even feel like it's been as dramatic. Maybe behind closed doors it has been, though. It's funny you bring up the protests because we've both been out at our fair share of them over the last two weeks. But again, they have been relatively calm. Like you said, no blocking motorways, not a lot of chaining themselves onto things. Looks like insulate Britain or really insulate England because there's been no sign of those guys. Yeah, I think the one time it really seemed to almost go off the rails would have been, of course, the time where typically I was strapped right in the middle of it. <laughs> yep. So that was the Wednesday, if I'm remembering correctly. The, as the, I said, first, the a, first Wednesday. Yeah, it's been a whirlwind. Yeah. Uh, but it, yeah, this, the first Wednesday. And that was the XR Greenwash March. I've pretty much become an expert on explaining what greenwashing is to people now. Greenwashing is this idea that companies will do things that appear to be very climate friendly because it's good PR but realistically what they're doing in the background maybe isn't all that climate friendly a lot of times oil companies and things like that get accused of doing it so that was a very interesting protest I'm sure we could go through a a few of the timelines of it but we can maybe compare it to some of the ones you've been to as well Mm -hmm. because you've certainly been to more than me but I've maybe spent the most time in the middle of a police containment as well yes yes not a kettle not a, a kettle. Con- a containment. Yeah, so obviously the march that you were at wasn't necessarily organised, it wasn't planned, it was more of a kind of pop-up march that kind of ended up not out of control, but much bigger, I think, than anybody was kind of anticipating or expecting, whereas the two main marches that I was on were both organised. So it was the Youth Climate Strike organised by Fridays for Future, which of course is Greta Thunberg's organisation. That was on the Friday, which was also officially Youth Day at COP26. And then on the Saturday, I was at the Global March for Climate Action, which saw about 100,000, it was huge, 100,000 people marching through Glasgow. And these march 
marches were happening all over the world at the same time but this one in Glasgow was kind of the the jewel in the crown the, the flagship march as part of the Global Day of Action for COP26 but those were pre-arranged with the police they were well organised and although there was a lot of people they passed pretty much without incident unlike some of the scenes that I think you saw I think First of all, 100,000 people in Glasgow is just one of these numbers that seems unimaginable to me. (laughs) It's just massive. It's that sort of thing where when I hear these big numbers, I always try to compare it to football stadiums because that's the easiest way for Mm -hmm. me to kind of picture that. So you think of Hamden and you're like, this is so much more than that. And it's in the streets of Glasgow. And that's crazy because the Greenwash March was, you know, I'm estimating here, it must have been at most probably 2,000 people. So that's a lot more, but they were very, very loud. It sounded a lot more than 2,000 people. And I think the reason that one went a little bit awry was because it began in in front of Buchanan Galleries and then the idea was to begin walking up Socky Hall Street. But of course, as you go up there, you're stopping at these traffic lights where there's cars. Mm -hmm. And straight away, the first road, a lot of these were Extinction Rebellion protesters. Mm -hmm. They got out in front of the cars, they held a banner, and that's when the police decided they were going to do this containing tactic, sometimes referred to as kettling, but not by Police Scotland. (laughs) And... But then it was an odd one because I think at first they just did one side, which then allowed Mm -hmm. the whole group just to back out the other end. And then it started almost this game of cat and mouse around Glasgow because would continue to try and contain these people but they would just run off in different directions and that led us down to SSE and JP Morgan's buildings so that's where the arrests were made because there was attempts to spray paint the side of the JP Morgan building so that's where it started to get a bit aggressive that's where I spoke to Sean who basically came out I don't know if he was on one of the buses but he certainly was standing next to the buses and came out and started arguing with the protesters and made some points I think a lot of people would agree with. You know, he said that he doesn't disagree with the messages that the people who were as part of the protest were putting across. He just didn't think that everyday people should be inconvenienced for it. And then from that point, it kind of goes round again and then eventually everyone joins up again and then that's where the containment actually works on St Vincent Street. And that's where we stayed for about two hours. And that's probably where it becomes a little bit traumatic for me because yeah. it was two hours sitting waiting to move I say traumatic but that's I don't traumatic. know you were cold and you were hungry more so hungry I mm. can't lie I was more so hungry it was just interesting because of course there is this debate right now and Police Scotland will say you know they'll call whatever the tactic they used they'll call that whatever they call it and mm. there is you know a lot of reasonable reasons to do that because these people or some of these people were trying to block traffic they were trying to go out in roads and you know in a city as busy as Glasgow that is dangerous it's dangerous for everybody it's dangerous for them and it's dangerous for people that are just trying to go about their daily lives but then there is an interesting flip side of it where fair enough you can understand why it was contained but then you could argue about one the amount of communication that went on even as a journalist with a press card I really struggled to get much of anything out of the police Mm. And then on top of that, you know, I could be wrong. Maybe other people did manage to get hold of it, but I certainly wasn't given any water. I wasn't given any access to toilet facilities. Luckily, I came prepared with water. And fortunately for me, because my luck, I would have assumed it would be the opposite. (laughs) Never needed to ask to be able to leave to go to the toilet or anything like that. But I don't think even if I did need, I, I was going to be permitted to do it. So... You know, there's an interesting debate to be had about because these protests will keep happening because mm-hmm. these people aren't satisfied about what's being agreed at COP, whether or not maybe police need to rethink their tactics on these. But I could go on and on about that. But it's certainly a highlight, a point that sticks out 
about COP to me. And in the interests of balance, Police Scotland says that it is a human rights based organisation and it will always facilitate people's rights to freedom of expression except when it starts to hamper other people's abilities to go about their daily lives fairly and it does not use kettling as a tactic. It is called a containment and it is a fluid situation where Police Scotland will work with organisers of the protest to identify people who shouldn't be caught up or who are perhaps vulnerable and shouldn't be held in that containment to allow them to move on. And I should point out, I suppose, you know, I've seen in other countries, different police, where I think kettling sometimes involves the police slowly moving in and, you know, putting pressure on that group. Whereas in this situation, I suppose the difference with containing is that they set up a very clear border and that left a lot of free space. There weren't people being pushed together and they never moved in on that. And I think that is the difference. And that is a very key difference to what I suppose maybe kettling and containing technically are. If the trees die, you die. One is delighted to be here today on this momentous occasion. It is always a huge honour to be in Glasgow. I do always feel so welcomed by the Scottish and their love of the monarchy. In terms of big organisations, what would your message be to them? Act now. Quite simple. Act now. Act yesterday. And have some sympathy, more than sympathy, for the Global South. We're dressed as dirty scrubbers, so we're in our aprons, we're in our, we've got our bandanas on and our, uh, we've got a bucket saying, we'll clean it up for you, because what we're saying is like, we're, we're the scrubbers who'll make all the dirty companies clean, what they like to do is greenwash, so they say, oh we're going to do this and we're going to do that, save the planet, and then do exactly the opposite, so we're, we're like employed by them. But we don't think it's right. We're trying to raise awareness with, with the public that what they hear isn't the truth. It's a good idea. Totally agree with them. But where the buses just they're in the wrong place. The pebbles that be are a mile along the road. Go and tell them there. See block stopping every every human being for going to their work or holding up traffic climate change is going to help me when I've got a dozen buses sitting idling in a street well that's going to help in it you had a few conversations there with some of them what were you saying just like what's the point in stopping everyday people from about their about their day to day stuff I totally agree with them but stopping everybody else thinking about their days we're going to not going to help like like I say just aggroed everybody up we're here because we want the government to act now on climate emergency and we're here to uh, build back greener. What would you like to see the government promise to do at COP? Um, greener jobs, renewable energy, stop funding fossil fuels, stop investing in fossil fuels. So, you want to save the planet? There were a lot of famous faces at COP26 and not just the politicians, but you know there was a lot of people who maybe left a lot of even the journalists starstruck, I think it's mm-hmm. fair to say. We can start rattling some of them off. Leonardo DiCaprio, he was there. Matt Damon, Emma Watson. And then, of course, David Attenborough, who gave a fantastic speech as part of the opening, proper opening ceremony, that is, of the actual conference. 
and then on top of that, you even have the Royals. So, you know, this is just... It, that really, for me, was what encapsulates just how massive this thing is. I don't know. For me, it was rumoured to soon be James Bond, Idris Elba, but okay. <laughs> I think just the collection <laughs> of the people yeah. is what made it so big for me. And you were in the front line of trying to grab a word with some of these people. Yeah, so I find myself in an interesting situation where I think, I can't remember what I was walking back from. The venue is massive. It's hard to put that into scale without being there. Although we do have a video. If you go to any of our Twitter accounts, you can (laughs) see this quick moving kind of tour of it. And that isn't even all of it, which is crazy, but it is massive. So I think I'd maybe even went from a lunch and I was walking back and you come to this zebra crossing between two of the buildings and they have this big yellow fence. And I noticed there was a few people gathering and of course, journalist senses start tingling. It's like, I should stay here. That's where just so many different people started walking out and it started, you know, Boris Johnson, interesting enough, okay, mm-hmm. had the Indian Prime Minister, it was getting interesting, but then the big part was where then I saw someone walking and I went, I think I recognise that face and then I was like, that's Leonardo DiCaprio. Leonardo DiCaprio. And I knew that he was around, but I didn't think, and maybe this is just naive of me, I imagined they would have like secret tunnels and all these things mm. set up back behind the venue for all these people to enter. But no, there was pretty much just this a line of security and a fence between us and these people. <laughs> and then, of course, we saw the building they walked into, so everyone was then running up the steps, and it was amazing. There wasn't any workplace injuries. And then round <laughs> to try and meet these people. Of course, they were surrounded by massive security details. But mm-hmm. Leonardo DiCaprio, that's going to be one of my claims to fame for a while, how close I was to him. Another one probably more interesting to me, not so much to other people who aren't as interested in politics, would be John Kerry. We were walking out one day, we were going home, and he was just hanging about. He was just chatting away to people. So I went up and tried to get a word with him. Unfortunately, he wasn't too keen on it and then pushed my my, my (laughs) arm away as I I put my microphone (laughs) towards him. But he did say we're doing well in in terms of how he thought COP was going so far. But that's got to be what made it feel so massive for me. It was just these big faces. And then sometimes where they were just so unfazed mm-hmm. by being out in the public pretty incredible and kind of verging on that boundary between activist and celebrity we've not even touched on the likes yet of your Greta Thunbergs and your Vanessa Nakati who a couple of months ago you know was on the cover of Time magazine these are the the people that are really bridging the gap almost between celebrity and activist and you've got obviously your David Attenborough's in there as well yeah and I think it's people like you know Sir David Attenborough you would expect it but then it's people as young as for example Greta when you hear their speeches there was a lot of really rallying speeches and it uh, certainly made a lot of people maybe sit up and think now does it have that effect on the people making the decisions in the venue who knows but certainly you could see because of the youth march, for example, mm-hmm. that you went to, just how much that's really capturing people's attention. And two very powerful speeches, of course, from the royals as well, both Charles and William giving very rallying speeches. Yeah, and I think so little of the time do we see them in that sort of way, um, I would say, you know, quite a personable way and hearing them talk in such long form. It doesn't happen that often. And it doesn't happen unless it's a topic that they're very passionate about. And for a lot of people, hearing those voices talk about it might make some in the the public domain kind of sit up and think, actually, this is an issue I need to do more on. No, definitely go down in history as the fortnight that Glasgow played host to so many famous people. I don't think we will ever experience that 
that'll never happen again. We'll never have that many people with so much influence altogether here. Exactly. That's why it's been such a whirlwind. I keep going back to that word, but it just feels as though it's passed by so quickly and it probably will be a long time into the future where you really start to take stock of how big of a thing we were all part of, which is pretty incredible. A tale of the smartest species doomed by that all-too-human characteristic of failing to see the bigger picture in pursuit of short-term goals. Perhaps the fact that the people most affected by climate change are no longer some imagined future generation, but young people alive today. Perhaps that will give us the impetus we need to rewrite our story, to turn this tragedy into a triumph. Looking back at Earth from up there, the atmosphere seems so thin, the world so finite, and so fragile. Now, in this critical year, and what we all know is the decisive decade, we must all stand together to protect our world. However, we cannot rely only on governments, NGOs, and philanthropies to solve the climate crisis. The private sector must also play its part to reduce carbon emissions. I know you all carry a heavy burden on your shoulders, and you do not need me to tell you that the eyes and hopes of the world are upon you. To act with all dispatch and decisively, because time has quite literally run out. The recent IPCC report gave us a clear diagnosis of the scale of the problem. We know what we must do. With a growing global population creating ever-increasing demand on the planet's finite resources, we have to reduce emissions urgently and take action to tackle the carbon already in the atmosphere. So, you want to save the planet? Lewis, that is the scene set. We know what has been going on outside and to a degree inside of these huge metal fences that surrounded the blue zone. But we need to get down to the real nitty gritty and the whole reason all these people have come together. And that is, did we save the planet? And I suppose there's always going to be opposing views on that Mm -hmm. because different people, I suppose, have different criteria to what they think would be a successful outcome at COP. But we've been talking to a lot of these activist groups and people have different views on a lot of these groups. You know, for example, we talked about that protest with Extinction Rebellion and a lot of people see them as having quite maybe extreme views Mm -hmm. on the climate. But then you can come back to people who are a little bit more centrist on there where you've maybe got Friends of the Earth or Greenpeace where I think we've talked to them quite a bit Mm -hmm. and they've been pretty scathing about even at the start. I remember the first day, the Sunday, talking to some of those groups and they were saying we already don't really have that much confidence that this cop is going to achieve what it needs to achieve because of how it's been set up and the fact that even before it started we knew there wouldn't be a physical presence from the politicians from China or from Russia Mm -hmm. you know Vladimir Putin wouldn't be there and these are some of the big countries that need to make commitments Mm -hmm. in order to make the change 
but then at the same time, you've got some politicians who, because they've probably played such a big part in it, they want to make out that they have made some pretty big decisions. It's worrying because... And there is a very distinct difference between these activists that are part of groups like Extinction Rebellion and, like you said, your Friends of the Earth, your Greenpeace, your WWF. These are organisations that are willing to get round the table and work with politicians and come to agreements that work for everyone. But when they are not even at the end, but halfway through COP26 coming out and saying, this isn't working, that is a real concern. And you know, the WWF are a big one as well there because they're so trusted by different politicians and by organisations that they have their own pavilion in mm-hmm. the middle. They're, they're there with all the delegates from the different countries at COP. So they do take their views very seriously. But again, you know, that's another one who really aren't too convinced about what has happened here. And, you know, look, we've, we've seen some big agreements, but the question sometimes is always going to be, that's a great agreement, but you need to do it 20 years earlier or more countries need to agree to it. That's the complicated thing because you often get this political jargon where they go, here's a big announcement, but then you kind of get brought down to earth when the activists go, well, this is what we think should have been added to this. Believing that our civilization as we know it can survive a 2.7 degree or a 3 degree hotter world, on the other hand, is not only extremely radical, it's pure madness. Out here, we speak the truth. The people in power are obviously scared of the truth. Yet, no matter how hard they try, they cannot escape from it. They cannot ignore the scientific consensus and above all, they cannot ignore us, the people, including their own children. They cannot ignore our screams as we reclaim our power. We are tired of their blah, blah, blah. Our leaders are not leading. This is what leadership looks like. The expectations for this climate summit are extremely low. It's probably going to limp towards failure. What we needed was bold action from governments. We needed not just tough talk, not just empty promises, but real concrete plans and policies that tackle the climate crisis, that had rich countries saying, recognising that limited temperatures below 1.5 needs us to decarbonise this decade. This was the ideal opportunity for the First Minister to show that we are serious about climate change and being serious about climate change means being serious about an eventual end to fossil fuels and a just transition. Signing up to this alliance today would have been the concrete evidence that we are on that path and we want to be with those people. So there's some waffly stuff about how they're talking to Boga, but there were 13 countries that signed up today, we could have been one of them, and we're not, and that's deeply disappointing. Unfortunately, Worryingly too, some things have gone backwards in here. So for example, we've seen the watering down of a commitment to phasing out fossil fuel subsidies. On the other hand, we have seen the strengthening of some of the texts, for example, particularly recognising the role that nature can play in addressing climate change. So there are some positives. We can't go backwards anymore. We must go forwards. We've seen commitments from countries in the closing hours. We really need to make sure that those commitments and movements are actually accommodated. We see the support for developing countries, for the poor countries as well. We've started to see some movement on money and funding. So you want to save the planet? That's what the activists have had to say, the ones that are getting in round the table with the politicians. 
But what about the big countries that are present at COP26? What about your Bidens and your Borises? What is it that they have had to say? So I think the difficult thing there is they have to ride this fine line between trying to sound happy about what's happened because, of course, they are much in control of it. But at the same time, there is a clear feeling. You know, I, I remember Alex Sharma saying on the Thursday, the last Thursday, he was saying we're having some you know, real difficulties in the negotiation rooms over often quite minor procedural issues. And he was really urging people to start having a bit of urgency, yeah. I suppose. Was Looking at of, the big picture as well yeah, instead of getting caught up in the, the detail. Yeah, it was kind of what he was putting across. And I think that says a lot. There certainly are a lot of countries that will want to save their own skin by saying, well, look, we've done our part, but I don't think there is a consensus that everyone has got together and maybe done as much as they can do. That's part of the reason. And I know it's part and parcel of negotiations that often they go to the wire. And that probably says a lot about how agreeable people are on a lot of these things. Humanity has long since run down the clock on climate change. It's one minute to midnight on that doomsday clock and we need to act now. If we don't get serious about climate change today, it will be too late for our children to do so tomorrow. Those of us who live in big, wealthy nations, those of us who help to precipitate the problem, we have an added burden to make sure that we are working with and helping and assisting those who are less responsible and less able, but are more vulnerable to this oncoming crisis. The science is clear. We only have a brief window left before us to raise our ambitions and to raise to meet the task that's rapidly narrowing. This is a decisive decade in which we have an opportunity to prove ourselves. We can keep the goal of limiting global warming to just 1.5 degrees Celsius within our reach if we come together. If we commit to doing our part of each of our nations with determination and with ambition. May I just say to all delegates, um, I apologize for the way this process has unfolded and I'm deeply sorry. I also understand the deep disappointment. But I think as you have noted, it's also vital that we um, protect this package. So, you want to save the planet? Well, Lewis, that is us. Yeah, it feels a bit weird. It feels almost like yesterday when we were tasked with the podcast together for COP26 mm-hmm. and that was a lot of planning that went into that yep. and uh, now it's all went by in a flash. It has six months of planning, organising, just for our coverage of this, never mind the nearly three years of planning that the UK government have put into actually organising COP26 in the first place. Obviously it was postponed for a year because of the pandemic, just the amount of effort, not just from us doing this podcast series, but really of many, many thousands of people to make this climate conference happen. And it's done. Summed up beautifully in 30 minutes by us. Yeah. And I think one thing I would say, I don't know about you, Natalie, but throughout the episodes that we put together, especially those first 10 where we were building up to this, I have learned a lot. Absolutely. 
I would actually say that a lot of those things, although they were all building up to COP26, are very much evergreen and they very much are still relevant now. So if you've maybe just picked up this last episode, you just wanted to find out was COP a success, please go back to them, have a look at the titles of them, uh, you know, and see what kind of topics interest you because there is a way in those first 10 episodes for every single person to find a way to reduce their own personal carbon footprint. And I suppose though what this whole conference has shown us is that we talked a lot about what we can personally do and that is very, very small in comparison to what big organisations and whole countries can do. But I do think we all still have a part to play in it. Different levels, of course. Beautifully put, loose, And I think at that, I think we can say thank you very much, everybody, for listening. And that's it from us. Thank you. Thank you.